Hello, I'm Jack Perks, a wildlife cameraman, and in my spare time, I host the Bearded Tits podcast. Every Tuesday, I speak to scientists, celebrities, artists, and passionate people about the natural world. If you want a laid-back and easy-to-listen show, then tune in. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, and I'll see you in the next episode. Cheers. Welcome to Into the Wild Nature Nerds around the world, but predominantly in the UK. It doesn't matter where you are. Welcome to the show. This is your monthly podcast about wildlife and conservation and nature and all things lovely and green and wonderful and alive in the world. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Dalton, but my other host is the lovely... Nadia Sheik. I'm so glad you took that cue. (laughs) Welcome (laughs) to the podcast that asks the question, great white sharks, why do you have so many teeth? Why is that necessary? Or it's a lot, isn't it? What you with? Um, so it's a teeth. lot, but it's part of their vibe. It's part um, of their vibe, vibe check, sharks. If you're eating in water, you're gonna need good grip. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Is it a good point? Because I make these things up. It is, but then also I don't think good grip comes with quantity of teeth. I think it's more quality over quantity, and I think great white sharks, you need a long, hard look at yourself for that. I want to tell you about me asking my dad to listen to this podcast for the first time. And and he said to me, <laughs> I don't want to do his accent, because I might sound then great don't. if I do my own dad's accent, but <laughs> um, he said... I listened to it and after 20 minutes, it was still this Ryan guy talking and I didn't hear any of you. And I was like, oh, I think, <laughs> I think you're listening to an older. Oh, episode. Mr. Shake. I'm so sorry. I know. Hopefully he'll listen to this one. Sorry, Dad. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mr. Shake, that it was just my voice <laughs> for 20 minutes. <laughs> and when, wow. I went on, when I went on his phone to have a look at it and um, I could see that he got 20 minutes in and stopped listening. It was oh, not completely God. No, but wow. also nature's not his bag, right? So... Well, it sounds like Ryan's not his bag. <laughs> I'm taking that incredibly personally. <laughs> it was late at night. He was just waiting to hear his daughter. <laughs> um, well, anyone, I'm, I'm sorry that you've had to listen to me. So how are you? What are you drinking? What's your drink for today's episode? Um, it's a red bush. A red bush? Yeah. <laughs> Asked about your drink. <laughs> sorry. Don't. <laughs> just keep going. I know, just <laughs> sometimes, like, you know, when your brain just goes and like you, but you have that split second where the majority part of your brain just goes, don't do it. And then it just, it's let it out. I've learned evolutionary, this is nature, mm. that it's very, very normal for our brains to think and do, think about and want to do really like, you know, when you stood on the edge of something, you're like, just, just jump in. Cause there's like, yeah. like I've stood on the edge of like, of like, pools or whatever and i thought i reckon i could just jump in and make that and i think that is like an evolutionary thing just to test us mm. well, this is what someone told me once or like if you're in a setting and you're like don't say that awkward thing don't say that awkward thing and then you say that awkward thing this is a benefit for us to just check ourselves that we're still in control it's or really nice like, that you gave a scientific reason to my shit joke yeah i know <laughs> thank you you it's really dragged me out of the gutter there. if anyone wanted to understand what solidarity is <laughs> example of solidarity <laughs> You really got my back, haven't you? Yeah. Um, what are you well, drinking? To, I'm oh shit! I'm having a. I'm just having a squash. Just oh, having a I thought squash. it was going to be. I thought it was going to be that co- cocktail that we saw the other day, the Paloma, which seems to be like everyone's drinking now. No, no, it's just the squash. I need us to hydrate. Um, it's because it's been a very long. I, I walked in two days. I'd done twenty six miles at work. So mm-hmm. I yesterday, mm-hmm. and I've just done a very long day today. So, um, but big thank you to my team member Isabella Branson who has helped me out today and give me a half day to have some rest. So big shout out to her on the show. Nice. That's nice, isn't it? Thank um, you. What a human. Well, welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. We we better go into our topics. Should we start with some positivity and get some? Um, well, well some positivity and a few more emotional bits of news but should we start with some nature news go so our nature news this week (laughs) it's really quite difficult looking for positive stories because the majority of nature news which i find interesting Mm. it's usually drastically sad statistics um and all but then we are where we are and actually if you're listening to this, it means that you're interested in nature news, but you're also interested in joy, which will what will serve you today on your plate. So before you get to that joy, let's talk about our rivers. Um, so 
This is the news that chemical cocktails that are harmful to wildlife have been found in 81% of rivers and lakes sites tested in England. Can we change the term chemical cocktails? Because that in itself feels like people have gone, let's just put the word cocktail in there. And then people think, well, it won't be that bad. Do you not think that makes it sound scarier? No, I think that's like a marketing thing. Okay. I think people are like if we if we put like oh some wacky chemical cocktails are in our rivers, it's like oh well we'll just easily take them out. No, let's talk about how real this is. Um. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you multiple want... bits of shit. In okay. Our rivers. Well, if you want some more, if you want to take the word cocktail out of it, we've got one thousand and six rivers and lake sites with data, and eight hundred and fourteen of those were found to have toxic mixtures. Is that better than cocktail? Uh. Yeah. It's okay. quite the cocktail, though, um, isn't it? This is according to data collected by the Environment Agency. And so these are like, so, some of these cocktails are the kind of stuff which, terrifyingly, we, they are known as forever chemicals. Oh. Um, <laughs> and Good news all around. Um, so that's going to persist forever. Um, and these, so these are things like pesticides and other mm. harmful chemicals, which obviously affect the flora and fauna that live within these amazing underwater and often hidden ecosystems. I think just for me, I've taken a massive interest in the increased awareness of pollutants that go into our seas and rivers over the last year, few years. Surface Again Stewards have done some amazing work raising the profile of what happens yeah, in our yeah. waters. And I think it's because largely people are like, I can see this big body of water and I don't know what's going on. And unless you've been like an like an like, I don't know, you're really into pond dipping or snorkeling, actually our wildlife below the water is incredibly rich and diverse and beautiful. And we don't see it disappearing because we just see the sparkly, shiny mm-hmm. water. And actually the idea that increasingly people are going wild swimming, particularly since COVID, the idea that actually we're swimming in some really toxic water, which can be really bad for our health, I think has sparked this additional interest of like, actually, this is directly harming me. And so in a way, it's really positive that there is this massive call on water companies who have essentially been paying millions to shareholders over the last few decades and yet have not upgraded systems, but also other problems, including like oil leaks into water and also farm runoff from farms that goes into rivers. So we obviously need much tighter regulation, but more people are talking about it, which can only be a good thing. And heartbreakingly, like hearing reports of rivers being like identified and called as like functionally dead, which is such a it's such a horrible thing. It's such a horrible sentence. term, but also like, you know, you could you could walk around a lot of the country and we're going to talk about farming today and look at landscape and be like, it's kind of functionally dead as well. Mm. Um, there are some places where it's just miles upon miles of monocrop sprayed with pesticides and we'll obviously get into that in a bit. And so um, that's just a bit of sad niche news. Uh, just props to Helena Horton from The Guardian, who is always doing brilliant research and journalism around environmental issues. So love to you. But on a positive note... Yeah, that's not a positive noise. (laughs) It's only a little positive note. And I think maybe I do just look for things that make me feel warm and squishy. And this is just that the world's first native bee sanctuary has kind of been created. Oh, that's delicious. I know. Is delicious the right word? But you know what I mean. It is delicious. Give me some pollen. (laughs) (laughs) Give me... Um, Paul Hendrick is a landowner in, in Northern Ireland and he was kind of had this plot of land and was looking at it and had an epiphany moment when he was like, actually, I know what I can do with this. And this is in County Wicklow. And the east coast of Ireland decided that actually I need to give this kind of love back to our native bees and doing some advocacy around actually often when we talk about bees and any comms around bees in the environment, we show a picture of the honeybee, but there are like over 270 or around about 270 other species of bees, which all require certain plants and pollen and safe places to build their little little nests, which are... Oh, really that's cute. so lovely. Thanks, Paul, for your epiphany Thanks, Paul. moment. Maybe we need more Pauls. And it sounds and like it's also an educo... An epiphany? Epiphany? I've never had one. I don't think I have. It sure What's it feel like? Um, it's like a glowing light. <laughs> No, 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 actually, no. <laughs> um, and I guess, I guess it's just nice when you hear about someone going, I can give something back to nature that feels yeah. like supports us. Yeah, thanks, well done, Paul. Well, thanks. But there's so much nature news out there, but they're just... <gasps> there is a lot. Things. There is a lot. But you, like you said, it, it's. I think we're in that time of year, we're getting towards midway in the year that we just got, we're, we're in the, 
It's like hump day, isn't it? It's like hump year. We're just getting over the bit. So it will start rounding off and I'm sure there'll be some lovely positive. I've got a hope. So let's just like keep that like maybe August and September we'll, we'll be able to find some results of something that will show something really beautiful for, one, for us. Some things on the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, thanks for bringing those stories, Nadia. Would you like to go on to Nature Room 101? I love it. It's my favourite bit. Let's yeah. go in. Right. Is that your door noise? I forgot about it. I forget every month. Do you want to do your door noise? Oh, thank Don't you very much. Don't too long because some of that stuff in there might crawl out. Might get out. Yeah, very true. Um, right, we asked um, listeners, people on social media, we asked for your least favourite nature smell. Um, I struggled with this one. Um, people on Twitter, I did, yeah, until I suddenly realised what it was. I'll share mine and <gasps> I don't think you're going to like mine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the smell of like dried seaweed on the coast. Oh wow, you're wrong. Oh, what is it about the smell? It's it's when it's dry, it's in the sun. When it's in the sun, it's got flies on it, which means there's probably a few bits of dead stuff as well. So it's a very combination of smells, but I associate it with that dry crunch of seaweed under my feet, and it's a bit salty and a bit. Yeah, I think when you're by the coast, there's nicer smells, and that one is the one that usually makes me go. Oof. I can understand there is a rot to it. There is a rot, isn't there? Yeah. I think the majority of our answers that we're going to get from this, there's going to be a, majority, odd, a bit of rot. Of, you get the odd dead jellyfish mingled in. Exactly, there might be a dead gannet. crab or something like yeah, and it's mixed in with a seaweed. It's just part of the you know part of the sea. So that was my one. Don't say your one yet because I I feel like we're going to naturally segue onto it people on twitter um i will say kind of <laughs> missed the point there was a lot of dead animals i missed the point well a lot of people were going don't like the smell of that it's dead so animal e- it's so easy well they were going I, I don't like the smell of rotten flesh i was like well i don't think yeah i don't think it's meant to like who are our audience? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, well, well, a lot of it was Lucy Lapwee. Lucy actually said, I smelt a dead weasel the other day and it hummed, but I also kind of liked it. It was like someone had made an essential oil out of a scent of a ferret, if you've ever smelt that. No. No. No, Lucy. No, the only person no. in the world that understands your reference. Your, <laughs> your what's, what's it called when you smell? I don't know. I don't, I don't know, but it, it was like she had created a new version of the Katy Perry song of I smelt a dead weasel and I liked it. They smelt like the essential oil of a ferret. Like it just, yeah, yeah exactly it was very, like very like that. It was exactly like that. <laughs> there was a lot of poo suggestions. Josh Luke Davies, Davis said uh, ginkgo fruit. Oh, I don't and have, I have smelled Someone it. else uh, agreed and said it smells like a teenager's bedroom. Ooh, put yeah. it in. I don't care. I don't even need to smell it. I don't even need to smell it. Put it in. Um, and then the one that actually outnumbered everything, including rotten flesh. And this came through. I, I stopped counting it in the end. And this is why I told you not to share yours because it was Himalayan balsam. <gasps> yes. It came who is through. It? Who is, who I stopped is, counting at twenty-five. Who is so, one? So who many is people. It? No, no, there's loads. I, I, oh, I, I, it's a po- oh, I don't feel alone. This is brilliant. No, it was absolutely the one that stood out the most as Fantastic. people kept going, Himalayan balsam, Himalayan balsam. So I would say that one has you know to what? go in. Even if I didn't agree, it had to go in. This, oh, God, I, oh, I'm so happy. It's so perfumey in a way. It's like when you, oh, you're given food, but it's perfumey food. And you're like, no, this is not food. This is smell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy Like walking past a lush shop This isn't soap This is just smell (laughs) Yeah, I'm not clean (laughs) Not clean I just smell of stuff (laughs) So yeah, I would say The absolute winner What about my seaweed? Are you putting dried seaweed in? Just on him Given the amount of it it is going to take yeah. us a long time to put this in room 101. So for all of yeah, you, but we don't, that- we don't, yeah, but we can, we can just grab it, okay. put it in, grab it, it's in. I'm yeah. so the, happy. but only the, the smell. I have to stress, we're not putting the whole plant, we're putting the smell. Okay, that's it. Okay, well, that's there's it. lots of complex arguments around. I know. I'm sorry, but if you know, but maybe doing- that, maybe maybe for another day, we do an episode around. Species like that, which have colonised and people have very negative thoughts around them. 
Yes, absolutely. So what about my seaweed? Are you put we've got ginkgo fruit in mm. Ramona One? Well, we've no, come this... on, this is a democracy. I mean, let's both discuss it. Okay. It smells like shit. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Case not, and you know what? Point. Okay. Do you know what? It's not the most pleasant smell in the world when it gets rotten. And I think what about things that use that smell to find oh i'm getting too into this what about into things it. it's that because you live by the coast because i live by the coast and i feel like i can't put it in because then i'm like am i just getting rid of beaches but i'm not it's just no you're not you're just getting rid of the smell okay we can get rid of the smell i, I don't particularly enjoy it so yeah let's get rid of it yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of nature room 101 um, I will remind everyone that we announced on social media that we are doing a Nature Room 101 live at Global Bird Fair on the 15th of July on the Osprey stage at 3pm. Uh, so if you're planning to go to Global Bird Fair this year, come see myself and Nadia and our three guests yet to be announced, but they are definitely booked in. I'm not just saying that. Some of your least favourite things on the topics that we decide. Right, nerds, this episode is one that I, I don't know how Nadia's felt, but I'm, I am a bit nervous about doing it. I'm going to be I'm honest. I'm a bit nervous about doing it. We're going to be talking about farming in the UK. Um, just check my back. <laughs> We're going to be talking about farming. Don't tell anyone. I feel like it's one of those subjects that you bring up. But I, I would say, actually, do you know what? For understandable reasons, because farming is everything to everyone, right? And, and for yeah. very different reasons. You know, for, for me, it's something that I require to survive. Um, for others, it's things that they're involved in for them to survive financially. Um, and it's where they live and it's what they their culture is. So I, we do understand that. I will say, um, if you're listening out of the UK, obviously we are talking about UK farming, but this will have some relevance to you in your country, I'm sure, because we do live in a country that is, you know, very near the bottom in regards to biodiversity strength. So please learn from our mistakes. But we won't just be talking about mistakes on the podcast. We are talking about ways that we could navigate around the situation we're in in the UK. Um, and if there are farmers listening, which I am sure there are as well, I just want to also say that we love you. Yeah, and this is not it. slagging you off or any farmer off. We are system thinkers. We are talking about a system that creates within our uh, exists. Sorry, within our country. So if you're a farmer, you're listening. We adore you. I need you. Please don't go anywhere. That's what I'm going to say. He'll be hungry and he can't have his bagel. <laughs> can't have my bagel. Oh God, that bagel is good. Nadia, what have you got? You start the show farming in the UK. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So I've just been doing, trying to like add some information to what I already know about farming, just to paint a little bit of picture of the land that we've got. So, so I'm going to actually just go straight from looking at the National Food Strategy was written and produced in 2021. And it's a really useful thing to paint a picture of what is our current situation, because ultimately this comes down to food. So I'm going to be looking at it from like a food point of view, because we need to farm in order to eat. It's absolutely vital. So what are we growing and what does it look like? So about, let's just say about 70% of England, I'm going to take, some of these are from England and I'll let you know, um, but that is comparable to like the whole of the UK. Right. About, well, 69% of England is farmed. And so we live and do bits on the other bits. It's quite a big chunk. But the National Food Strategy, as a summary, kind of set, kind of laid out three things that we need, which is we need food to make us well and not sick. Um, we need our food system to withstand global shock and we need to restore nature and to um, halt climate change. Restoring nature and halt climate change are inextricably linked to how we use land. Yes, absolutely. And how we use resources, which is why it kind of comes into farming. So it's looking at like this, what are we going to do when we need to feed people? Mm -hmm. um, and it is important to say that what we eat is actually a deciding factor in about how we use our land. So what we eat as a nation and what we eat culturally does make a difference on how land is used. It's a supply and demand thing. Yes. Um, right. And so that's all also an awkward conversation, right? Because it's not just going to be a load of people saying, stop eating meat, but it does have an impact. So changes are needed to our diet to meet our own carbon and land use targets. So as a, as a country, as the UK, we have carbon emission targets, carbon sequestration, and um, we have targets for our biodiversity. So we have to think about how we use land in order to, to manage all of those things. But surprisingly, it is actually possible. So this is what I've kind of learned. But okay. just statistics for you. So Catlin sheep um, give between 10 and 100 times greater a carbon footprint than plant-based foods. So plant-based foods is plants. And in the global food system, look at globally, um, a third of all of our greenhouse gases come from the meat industry. 
or from that kind of meat industry, which is a huge amount. Um, and actually, I often find sometimes I actually struggle to hear numbers and think like, what does that look like? What's that? Mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it's tricky, right? When you're just like, it's this many tons of this. And it's like, what is that? Is that how many? Yeah, el- it's almost how like many sh- sh- elephants? Yeah. <laughs> how many blue whales is that? Like it, but it how is. Many I think also like that, that shock factor is almost gone with stats like that, isn't it? We're so used to hearing some of them. There is a really great map that you can see of the UK. And if you Google something like food strategy, UK land use map, you'll get it. It's a really good picture of the country made up of hexagons. And maybe that's showing my inability to understand what shapes are. How many sides have these got? Six. A hexagon. Yay. So the majority of the UK is used for beef and lamb pasture. And you can see this is a really good visually. Ryan, I don't know whether you'll be able to link this to some of our show notes potentially. And then like the next biggest thing is for cereals and then dairy pastures. Only about the size less than Wales is, is built up area. And it's then always Wales. Pardon? It's, it is always Wales and it's just it's useful. You can kind of get it. Small amount, about, you know, tiny, tiny little bits. I mean, compared to that, I guess half of Northern Ireland, about worth of size is for poultry and poultry feed. Quite a big, significant amount for Christmas trees, I found. And dairy <laughs> But take a look at that map because it gives you a really good visual. But generally, um, grass for cattle and sheep is about 63% of land in England. Wow. Feed for animals is 22%. And food for humans, which is directly something you can grow and then take the calories straight away from that, is 15%. But staggeringly, 68% of calories and 57% of protein we can get from that. So it's like a huge amount of our calorie and intake from that direct. And I think when you look at this, and I do, I have to take credit um, from a guy that did a presentation about this, and I don't remember his name, but we'll link it. But a really cool guy that presented this report on the National Food Strategy for People's uh, Plan for Nature. Um, So a lot of our land in the UK isn't good for people food for growing um plant-based food but and if if we so if you imagine if we did reduce our need for meat then we'd have this land that we couldn't grow vegetables on which then could be the bit that we put back to nature and then start doing the carbon stuff potentially but the national food strategy states that only five to eight percent would need to be removed from food this is land would need to be removed from food to significantly contribute to what we need to do for wildlife and climate that's insane that's mad um so it's so even if we just changed like land use here, but but if you, if you're telling us to just change land use and do more stuff for wildlife and not change our diets, what would happen is we would just get the food that we need from other countries. So it's just putting the problem to another country. So if tomorrow the government said, right, that's it, thirty percent of all land is just for nature, we can't farm on it because we want to meet our food and we want to meet our wildlife and climate targets, then we would just outsource yeah. and get our beef from other countries. So we need to think about like taking this approach for what can we do to feed ourselves in a healthy way and to be globally safe from global shock, but also not deferring the problem, which is a really colonial way of doing stuff. It's like, oh, we'll just get cheap meat from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of the strategy as well, it kind of set out that as a nation, we need to increase our fruit and veg kind of intake and our kind of plant intake by 30% and reduce our meat intake by 30%. It doesn't mean we need to get rid of meat. Meat is a really important part of our diet and always has been. And it's important (laughs) for lots of different people culturally. We just, if we maybe reduced it a little bit, we would balance out. Now, here's the thing that really gets me the most about, hopefully I've painted a picture about how we use our land Mm -hmm. enough. But 25% of food grown on farms is wasted. 25% is wasted? That's 3.3 million million tons, which equates to about 6.9 billion meals. There's just wasted. Just, it, am I, if, All am different I going kinds around of the things. right There are things like crop failure. There are things like right. efficiency of how crops are harvested. Mm. Um, I was actually listening to a radio show yesterday, which was about a worker shortage. And there was a guy who runs an asparagus farm. And over the last, I can't remember how many years, but he's lost 30,000 pounds worth of asparagus because there is no one to pick it. So food is wasted all the time for different reasons, but also no one to pick it. Yeah. So that's just as why. And then and then on top of that, there's things like food not meeting standards for supermarkets. That's not what supermarkets are asking of farmers. So like the carrot has got a fanny on it or something or a fun like and (laughs) for our taste, it's just not appropriate. Sorry. Um, Sorry. Just give me a minute. So, so 9,600 kilometer squares of land each year is used to produce food that never makes it off the farm. That's almost half the size of Wales. Again, 
Wales. I know, but it's useful. <laughs> See what I mean? Yeah, it's always Wales. Thank you, Wales. Thank you, Wales, for being so the absolute perfect size for things. <laughs> so not all of it is avoidable, the wastage on farms, but we reckon if we can make some simple changes, there are ways of avoiding some of this and maybe legislating a supporting form. Like farmers need equipment and they need money to do the things that they want to do. Farmers yeah. just don't... Farmers do not want to, from every farmer I've ever met or spoken to or anything I've ever read, they don't want any of the stuff that they put their heart and soul into to go to waste. But we're never going to be able to save all of that. But if we if we did take some different measures, um, it could mean a 20% increase in profit for farmers just by... Stopping some of that waste. So um, so that's just what happens on the farm. But if we look at post-farm waste, so it's gone off the farm, it's been bought by supermarkets... 70% of wasted post-farm is wasted in households. So, it, so we're talking about all the food since it's left the farm, whatever the wastage is there, 70% of that is wasted in households. So we are just buying and it. And is then wasted in the manufacturing throwing. process. Oh, well, you don't mean like we buy it and then throw it away? Well, we do do that. Uh. So when you look at how, how much food then is wasted, so cons- like I guess, I guess food that goes into landfill, yeah. The food that is not eaten by humans once it's left farms, 70% of that is household, like responsible from households. Oh, Jesus Christ. Just use it. Make a curry. Make a curry. Or just like have one of them pots constantly going where you just shove stuff in and call it a broth. Just call it a broth. <laughs> what are you having tonight? Just broth. Broth. <laughs> broth. Broth. I got to get rid of my teas for you. So you yeah, got broth. Saying. So um, I guess. From a nature point of view, we understand that some of the biggest drivers of biodiversity loss um, and kind of yeah. release of greenhouse gases is because of various industrial farming techniques, like yeah, fragmentation, losing hedgerows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all of these different things. So essentially, it feels like we can produce enough. I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? Give me your thoughts. I, I, think, I, I think we kept from my... So I asked uh, a lot of people this kind of question, like, can we produce food in this country that's affordable for people in this country kind of thing? The, the answer seems to be across the board, whether I'm talking to a, you know, an ecologist, a farmer, someone, you know, in like an organization to do with food production, they all just tell me it is possible. So I do believe it is possible because I trust those voices. But I feel like the barrier with this being possible is, is, is trust, is trusting that where you put your money it is going to actually create change. Because I think we're living in a time that is so difficult to afford certain aspects of food and to afford certain aspects of anything. And I think people are being very careful with where they suddenly change their habits. They're very comfortable with where they are being able to afford what they currently are affording. So I think that is that trust to go like, well, I'm going to go to this source to get my food, which is incredibly different, which might create some change. And hopefully that's a good thing. But I also think people just, so you've got that trust element, but then also that unsure of going, is it question mark? Is that the right thing to do? Because it is very hard to make that choice. I think I didn't eat meat and dairy for seven years and it suddenly last year took an impact on my health. So I had to make that choice going, am I going to go back into this? And if so, how? And it took me a lot of research and reading to decide where I was ethically happy going in and mm-hmm. how often and also but is it this is doing this actually going to benefit my health and i got there but then i kind of sit back on that a little bit and go oh loads of people ain't got time for that no i'm not, I'm not I, I hate saying that because it sounds like i did all this lovely work but i mean like it took me a long time to figure out how to do this i can't see everyone wanting to do that so it it's just such an ingrained social issue of food production. I, I think it's hard for people. So I I, I think it, it I, I believe it's possible. I just don't see how people are going to do it. Yeah. Like, sorry, I know it's a bit of a no, but answer. You just touched on something which is worth saying, which is like food is so deeply important culturally and socially for us mm. in terms of something to bring humans together in terms of the social networks that we make. Like, I don't, I think it's important to not discuss it in this abstract sense of like, we just yeah, have yeah. To get the calories from somewhere. Actually, it, it goes way deeper in terms of our connection to land and who we are and and kind of importance of different cultural cuisines um, and how we share things. So, like, it's not just deciding what's the best for wildlife and what's the best for my health. It's yeah. also what's the 
best for who I am and how I belong in these places is also really important. And I think, like, like, like you said, food is this culture thing, and this is why, like, with with GM foods or like lab based foods that are coming out, which whilst yeah, I, 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 we don't think in binary ways on this podcast. I'm not going to say they're bad because they will have benefits to something somewhere, and I know they exist. But I just I think solutions it, it like that for me, it just feels like the culture has been ripped away from that. Mm. And I think how are you, food in this country and, and around the world has such story and heart and soul in it. Because and it's grown with heart and soul. And exactly. And I think, lab, it's going to be like that bit in the Matrix where they're like, <laughs> what does chicken taste like? Yeah, exactly. Like, it, it's just, I, I would so much, even, if, I mean, if you told me it was going to save the world tomorrow, I'd, I'd go into it. I would, of course, I would. But I'm sorry, I'd I don't think. Really so I, di- I disagree. I don't think it's sustainable. Like, I oh, no, do- I don't think it would. No, I don't like. If you were telling me, like, let's, I mean, like, let's say it was proven, it was definitely going to save the world. Then I would do it. But, but I would. What be does upset saving the world it. look like, though? Does it mean that wildlife can thrive and everybody gets calories? Yeah, I'm talking like idealistic thinking. This is not like I'm not. But I don't think that's idealistic thinking. I think that is dystopian. To say yeah, that fair. actually wildlife is thriving because we're now growing all of our food underground to remove the human and the growing and the connection to growing our food will kill our culture. It will kill humans for what it is to be human. Yeah. In the same way that I think nature conservation can't work if you just build a lot of nature reserves and put nature in it and keep people out. What does that mean for humanity? Because what's the point if we can't live alongside it? Yeah. So uh, Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So I just, I, I think for that. I've stumped you. No, I'm thinking. No, 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 because you're, I'm, I'm just thinking about like the conversations I see about around this kind of food that is produced without heart and soul in it. And it's just. You've been on an aeroplane. Correct. You've been eating that food. Eating aeroplane food. Does it, I mean, compared to coming around to your friend's house, he's made you dinner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, BA. It's shit. <laughs> Although I, because I love miniature things, I do quite enjoy like the little mini bits. Yeah, you like, like quite, the mini bread roll and I, stuff. I, but I, I mean, like, like, like exciting. <laughs> but like when I went to like Portimao in Portugal, just to eat at the local restaurants where the small boat had gone out and got a couple of, you know, hake that day, and it's just like that had so much feeling in it. Mm, yeah. That it was just there's something. It's almost people that have prepared it. Yeah, and it it was a feeling that you almost. I for me, I can't describe. It's just this like that. There is a. a, Is there like a? Is there? Is it German or Dutch? There's a word somewhere that just has that feeling of yes. This like having a cup of tea on a cold day on on your. Please find that word. I will find it and tweet about it. I can't remember it now, but there's this word that's something like like I cat laying by the fireplace is that word there is no like do you know what i mean i, I think it's dutch are you talking about higgy higgy are you what no higgy that was might... really that was brave of me to attempt saying that word and i'm really sorry it's swedish it's swedish it is, is it swedish. that word it might be no see that's more about that mm, cozy feeling basically well, what we're saying is it, food should have heart and soul in it it absolutely has to involve us because we need to know how to grow. We need to know how to care and love for the land, to observe what plants and wildlife need, because the act of growing in itself and identifying and noticing the world around you is a really beautiful thing. And how can we feed ourselves? I mean, just like you were saying, I was in London with Ryan at the weekend and we went to East London and there are so many growers mm-hmm. and so many people just finding spaces to love love the things that they're going to put in their mouth um i just had to warn ryan <laughs> what what um what? nothing um <laughs> redbush um so i uh, and like if we can't imagine a world where there is more space for local growers and people growing to be at the heart of a community even in london then if we say, actually, it's okay, tomorrow we can build these things that produce artificial, this artificial, that everyone will get the right amount of calories. I just think that we're going to be a world that forgets in a couple of generations how to know which foods grow together, how to do permaculture, how to restore soil. And again, it's forgetting that 
humans have existed in this landscape for as long as all of the other stuff we have harvested and cultivated and shaped the biodiversity of this world. We've affected. If you take agriculture in its more broad sense um, and you look at wood production, for example, because we've always been a culture that's needed wood. We've needed wood to burn our fires, to build our houses, to put in furnaces, to make steel and to do all of the other things that we do where we need really hot places because we need lots of wood or we need wood for making walking sticks and cups. Wood has been in everything up until kind of like fairly recently in human history, don't you laugh? Uh, you can't. You yeah, I'm, you I'm can't. not laughing. Okay. Wood has been in everything, though. It Carry has on. been in everything. And so um, <laughs> if you take, for example, ancient coppice, which is a, a way of managing woodland, this is a practice where you, on rotation, cut down the big trees at a higher level and so that the, the trees put up all these extra shoots to grow again so that they they grow up and we coppice and we take that wood and we use it for charcoal and burning and all different kinds of things. And it's done on rotation. There is wildlife that specifically likes to live in those habitats because humans for thousands of years have done that. And so that's where they're safe and that's where they've thrived. And um, I have to thank Sam Lee, musician Sam Lee, for his education on this because I spent two weeks with him in wood coppice in West Sussex where nightingales are thriving. It's ancient wood coppice. And he was explaining to us, these trees have evolved because they have been cut down and knocked down, whether it was by the woolly mammoth or whether it was by humans cutting trees down, they wouldn't have persisted. And they've evolved this technique to still keep growing for thousands of years. Um, and wildlife has benefited and we've benefited. So I guess I've lost my point. But my point is, is that we can live alongside these things and yeah, do, yeah. have this relationship where we still benefit from it. And I think, I think maybe we have to see food a bit more as like a place where we can be part of it, do things on the land, but nature still thrives because it does. There are ways of. Yeah. And I think like there is a, there is a lot in saying that if you go to a farm now, you will see nature. Like I, I think, you know, there is an industrial level that has halted a lot of what you might see, but uh, there are a lot of farms that still exist that you can go and see an abundance of stuff. And I think seeing that shows you that it's happening on some level. So it can happen on a greater level. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at this point, it's important to mention before we bring in some of um, our speakers, just to say that like the industrialization of farming, which is one of the greatest drivers of biodiversity decline in this country, is not unlike the industrialization of making calories, which is what we're talking about, alternative ways of, of food things. And maybe there are some solutions for some respects, but industrialization, it was also an answer where you're removing the soul, the heart and the love. Yeah, yeah. Tenderness. And I know it's hard for farmers and I don't want to like say that to people that obviously do that. But then farmers, yeah, have yeah. Been driven, farmers have been driven by policy and funding like if you've got like a family to feed and you need to bring in an income and there are government incentives which make you farm in a certain way. And particularly a lot of this shift was done after the war when we needed intensive kind of agriculture and more ways to feed people. Farmers have gone on this journey too. We've all been nudged and pushed and shoved to eat more meat and to do things which are necessarily not great for the environment. And farmers have too. And so I think it's like a, it's an, it's a, it's for us all to come together and accept that this change has happened. There's not a lot of people that have chosen chosen to be in this system, I think is important to say. Like yeah. it's a lot of forced position. And like incrementally, it's, it's incrementally, right? Yeah. It's not, yeah. And so I, I like like you said there, and we will we'll probably keep saying throughout the episode, is that the, the people in it producing the farmers. We're not talking about you here. I, I, I'm not. I'm really not. I'm, you know, I'm talking about a system thing. This is how my brain is thinking. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to bring up some new voices. I'm going to bring in someone called Sue Pritchard, who is the director of the Food Farming and Countryside Commission. I spoke to Sue. Nadia, I sent her some questions. Yeah. I did. I had a nice little natter. I said to Sue, my first question with her is, what do you think are the biggest challenges for both farmers and nature in the UK and what, and what those challenges will be and what they will face in the next 10 years? And this is what Sue had to say. Hello, this is Sue Pritchard and I'm Chief Executive of the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission. I'm also um, a farmer in Monmouthshire and talking to you now from um, my garden, hence the lovely sound of birdsong in the background. So what do I think are the biggest challenges facing both farmers and nature in the UK over the next 10 years? Food farming is at the heart of so many of the challenges we face 
as a society at the moment, not just in the UK, but all around the world. We can't do without food. We can't do without nature. And we can't carry on treating the climate as if it's an optional extra to come back to at some point in the future. So we have to be able to tackle more than one problem at a time. We have to be able to act on the crisis of nature, the crisis of climate, the crisis of diet-related ill health, and now, frankly, the crisis of equity that so many people in the UK and all around the world just don't have enough good, healthy food to eat to sustain them. Doing more than one thing at a time can be quite difficult for governments, and it means that governments and businesses have to line up policies, line up actions to be able to work together on tackling these huge issues. So I guess if I were to pick on one thing, it would be finding ways of working really effectively together, of collaborating across the divides that have often separated us between folk that are really focused on climate and nature and folk that are focused on food production and food security. We have to be able to work on everything at once. So that was Sue there, which I think had a wonderful point. And I love collaboration. And I always think there's a lack of it. Very easy to say from the outside, I will say that. But (laughs) what were your thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, just speaking sense that we can't just tackle one thing at a time. We need to look at this thing as a whole. um, And the issues are not separate issues. It's one issue and it's understanding the root and the drivers of some of, of, of the reason how we've got into this thing in the first place. There are too many arguments across the divide. Yeah. I've been known to be raggy and argumentative across the divide um, because I'm human and because I'm hurt by the things that I see. Because you feel? I do feel. But, and, you know, it was a rant that we were having earlier today, Ryan, which is mm. like, oh, it's frustrating because you and I, you know, we're not big landowners. We're not farmers. We're not, uh, you know, working for NGOs. And they've just looking back and seeing all these grown ass adults just arguing with each other about stuff. It's driving me, you know, it just makes you feel so, oh, I just don't know, like fed up and just tired of it. Got a farm very real situated in a landscape going, yeah, we just don't need to like work together and come up with solutions. Um, And actually, reality is it is hard to get a lot of people to work together. You know, we have a capacity as humans for how many people we can work together reasonably with. But Mm. this is not impossible. We've sent people to the moon. Uh, we can depending on what you believe um yeah it's... Well, i nearly said that but then i didn't want people to think i was a conspiracy i'm not i'm just saying it depends what you believe it does pretend well think of another thing that we did we um they still making fast and the Furious. if you're still making money off fast and, if you're the, still making a fast and the furious film we can come up with solutions for the climate crisis <laughs> That's such a wonderful point. Um, Yeah, I I think it it can happen. I think there has to be an acceptance to compromise on every side in this as well. There will be uh, moments where we have to give in a little bit to things that we might feel a bit unsure about, but this is how progress is made. We can't have tunnel visions. You can have tunnel goals, absolutely. You can have end goals you want to get to, but at some points in these collaborations, you're going to have to give into something as long as it's not as long as it is not not completely destructive to rights of nature and people. Of course, in this specific topic, but it, there are going to be times where we look at things more locally and less broadly across the whole of the United Kingdom. Working on a local level, things will change. There's no one way to do things, right? There's like Sue said, there's different problems to solve. So there's going to be different no, solutions. I don't. You just want to like go douche with your head because it's like you've got. I just feel like nobody really disagrees. We all want to grow food in a system that there is little waste. Farmers are paid absolutely for the labour that they put into the land. And we don't want our biodiversity to disappear. I feel like everyone agrees with it. Yeah. I like, what's all the arguing? Um, Good point. Just a collision of views. I think views. you get arrogance from both sides a lot of the time. You do. I've seen people say, I've seen two people recently on Twitter in the same argument say the sentence, I know I'm right on this. So it's not really movable, isn't it? That's, is that's it? that then. <laughs> you know, I went to, I went to a workshop at the weekend around land justice and there was a br- brilliant Colombian guy there. And he was talking about, you know, in Colombia, when 
the community has issues they need to deal with, they'll often sit for like weeks to months chewing over an idea. So they come together with a solution. And when this stuff's done on Twitter and like the responses to government consultations, it just isn't going to work. Let's get everybody around a room for three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of fire. Right. Strap yourself in and then see if you want to be involved. Um, I'm okay, going to go back to... Well, yeah, I wanted to go back to Sue because I also wanted to ask her, so when she said what the biggest challenges were, but what does Sue believe should be our priority for food production and climate and biodiversity crisis management? And this is what Sue had to say. So what do I believe should be our priority for food production and climate and biodiversity crisis management? Well, for us at FFCC, we advocate strongly for a planned and well-resourced transition to an agroecological future, the kind of farming and food production that is designed to tackle multiple crises at once. And in the work that we've done, the research that we commissioned from IDRI, the, the French think tank at Sciences Po in Paris, it set out a pathway for a transition to 2050 that does indeed enable us to reduce carbon emissions by upwards of 70%, to restore nature and biodiversity across the whole of the farm, farm landscape, to produce more healthy food sustainably from viable farm businesses, farm businesses that can support UK production as well as an export market where we can sell the kinds of things that we grow within our ecology here to um, other countries overseas and at the same time import from them the sorts of things that they are more ecologically suited to grow in their parts of the world, in their climates. And finally, not to export our footprint, not to focus on either um, nature, climate or food security, but then end up exporting our real climate and nature footprint to those parts of the world that are perhaps less able to act on them. So for me, a well-resourced transition plan to agroecology, resourced by government investment, as well as the market signals from retailers and processors, really supporting those farmers who are making um, those sorts of transitions down their supply chain um, and using the power of public money through things like procurement um, and food service uh, to, to line up all of the signals from the public sector and the private sector for that transition to agroecology. Um, I love what Sue said there. And one of the biggest things that I do like about it is this long-term plan thinking. So yeah. this isn't what are we achieving in the next 10 years, it's going right to, well, actually, yeah, it's 20 years. God, God, no, not 20 years, sorry, 30 years. 2050 just keeps getting closer, right? Um, <laughs> so, but I like that and touching on your point as well that you made earlier of not exporting our footprint yeah. elsewhere. And it's, it's point. I, yeah, I really think that kind of that plan system in transferring to something else and and just in creating a new system that works. I think that's you know what, what I liked about Susie. Yeah, go you on. Tell, you, te- you remember at Christmas, there was a turkey shortage and everyone went mad. Yeah. People didn't even used to eat turkey. They used to eat goose. <laughs> goose. Do you get the point I'm making? With a long-term enough view, it will be easier and slowly and be- like easier to transition slowly into how we have our diets. I'm just just summarising. So you next this Christmas more goose, more goose, <laughs> more goose, <laughs> some moose, <laughs> moose for Christmas this year. No, That's where um, we no, it's a really important problem. Like yeah. it, exactly, like it's a really important point that she's making, which is around like this is never going to be a short-term solution. This is going to be a long Mm. transition. There are some things that we can implement quickly and we need to implement quickly. We have to stop poisoning our rivers. Yes, exactly. Yeah, those kind of things are like, right, these are like big red flags. These are the reddest of flags. In terms of transitioning from our diet, no one has to be afraid. These things can happen really slowly and they already are happening slowly. Like if you look at the shift to non-dairy milk, for example, I'm not saying that's right, I'm just saying that it has happened. Whether you like it or not, the people that are drinking oat milk are enjoying the oat milk. I will also say as well, when we talk about plant-based diets, I will, I, 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 please, if you're listening and you're not veggie vegan and you don't, you don't use plant-based diets, we're not just talking about processed plant-based foods here. We're talking about meals that you can make 
from plant foods. Yeah. That's what I would like to say, because it's very easy to go, oh, I'm not eating fake bacon, which is a you very fair point. It's a fair point unless you've tried rich and bacon. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Okay. Fair point. But you get what I'm saying. We're I do get, about, I get exactly what you're saying. Yeah. We're not just talking about the alternatives here. We are talking about... I'm bringing about, in a bit of vegan comedy relief, and I think that that's okay. It's okay. I look forward to the day that I will integrate, integrate meat back into my diet. Because the system makes me feel like that's okay. Yes. Yes. I can't wait as well. I can't wait to cook you venison for the first yeah. time. Well, you can, because I'm happy to have venison because it'll be killed locally. It's beautiful. And mine is, um, yeah. I've right. just lost some supporters and listeners. Um <laughs> don't, gained us a few more. Don't just judge me on what I eat. It's one element of who I am. You've but, got that on a t-shirt. But no, I think um I think this conversation must go on and needs to go on. There's so much that yeah. we haven't covered around farming and why we've got to the place that we did so next um this is going to be a two-part episode and in the next part i will be covering off a little bit more around the financial incentives that exist around our food system why we have the food system that we've got which is around financial incentives and policy from the government how we've got here and how financial incentives can work in the favor um and what when you know susan's talking about agroecology what does that mean what are alternative systems and so we can bring on some voices to talk about that as well. Absolutely. And I will be bringing in some voices. We've got a few more farmers and conservationists and climate scientists even that will be coming in to share their two pence about the next 30 plus years in the UK with farming and food production. So yes, thank you for listening to this episode. It's been a pleasure. I knew, I think me and Nadia knew this one was going to be a two-parter. Um, there's just not enough time. In there's not. See, this is your appetizer. Maybe yes. your volivant. This is your volivant. This was your starter and your and your bread side. It was, and then yeah, it was, we'll go it was into your, your main olives. and your dessert in the next one. Main and your dessert, which are the superior. Superior. <laughs> so, Ryan, what are we going to ask people to do for their room one or one next time? Oh, for next Dr. episode. I came up with smells last time, so you have to come up with this one. Okay, I'm gonna right. Your li- no, right. I thought of one the other day. I thought of one the other day. Can I do it? <laughs> I just gave you something and took it just away. Just literally before I even thought about my job, it was taken away from me. Uh, go on then. You can introduce a new Nature Room 101 topic. Go on. Summer that's extinct that you wouldn't bring back, you would still stuck it, stick You'd it. You'd keep it. You'd just keep it gone and lock I Keep it, it gone. I'm glad it's extinct. Um, so like right. it could be a recent extinction, which is quite sad, really. Okay. But what's gone harsh, that you it? want to keep gone? It is a bit harsh, but also it's interesting. Nature Room 101 Ladies and gentlemen, email us, DM us on social media. We'll be putting a tweet and an Instagram out there for the an extinct animal you would not bring back and you'd keep in room 101 forever. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure. As always, please follow us on social media, Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram, Into the Wild Pod on Twitter. If you would like to um, support Into the Wild, you can do so on www.kofi.com forward slash Into the Wild Pod. This has been Farming Episode Part 1, and we'll be going on to Farming Episode Part 2 very, very soon. So thanks for being here. Take care, nerds. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Into the Wild. You can find us on social media at Into the Wild Pod for Twitter and at Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to let us know your thing to go into Nature Room 101 or share a topic for Nadia and I to cover on the show, you can email us at intothewildpod at gmail.com.